0: Tonight, we're going to continue with um, the focus on um, a soul at peace, and we are going to focus on, on peacemaking. If you just glance in the corner there at the board, uh, we dealt with all of those relationships in, in quite some depth, and I want to encourage you to rehearse all of that um, because we determined and we concluded this that within the culture of peaceful relationships, um, God will prosper us. To my mind, um, securing peaceful relationships is the final frontier in the present move of God. It's really penultimate. Penultimate in that it's penultimate to Zion. What we're essentially talking about is an Hebronic position. But for me, it's final in the sense, while it's penultimate, it's in essence final because if this is secured... Zion is easily attainable. So once you secure Hebron, you can easily take take Zion. So for me, it's final in that sense. It's so strategic, so, so, so very, very important. So we've established this, that peaceful relationships are such a priority in God, and it's really the basis for which all kinds of success in God will be attained. Having said that then, How do you and I position ourselves for um, facilitating and fostering a peaceful environment? If peace and relational peace, that is peace between people, um, you, you at peace with all men around you, right? With every single relationship, even your enemies, within your heart, your disposition is always um, peaceful. Is always reconciliatory, not antagonistic, not bitter, not an ounce of unforgiveness, no resentment, no acronym- animosity, uh, no malice in your heart, no hatred, no bitter anger, nothing of that sort. But every disposition within your heart, even to your greatest persecutor, is biblically correct, right? Now, that's what we want, right? So tonight's focus is going to be on how do we make that peace, right? How do we make that peace, and what does the Bible say about this whole issue of functioning as peacemakers? Amen? Peacemakers. Now, obviously, listen carefully, you live in a world where you relate to people, right? And you are going to get hurt sooner or later. Somebody's going to disappoint you, somebody's going to attack you, somebody's going to misrepresent you. Um, you're bound to get injured in the area of your soul relationally. Because there's such an, a, a, an array of multifaceted, various kinds of relationships um, that exist within your world. Right? And so you have got to guard your heart that in how you relate to people, you live above offense. It's one of the most greatest empowering positions to live in a world and to live offense free. Now you might say tall you might say tall order, right? But tell your neighbor biblical. <laughs> Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall by any means offend them. It is possible. Now I want to reaffirm. When I make these statements, these are assertions. Much as preaching, I'm asserting and proclaiming something in the realm of the environment over this house. I assert tonight that it is possible to live an offense-free life relationally. Amen? You can live above the proneness to be hurt. You can live where you're not easily susceptible to bitterness, to anger, to malice, to hatred, to, uh, to, to, to uh, uh, animosity, in all of these negative emotional states. It is possible. There's a beautiful psalm in Psalm 55 verse 18. He will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me, for there are many who strive with me. That's amazing what the psalmist says here. eh? He says, in the context of even many striving with me, God will redeem my soul in peace. He's saying in the context of difficult relational issues, I will ensure that my soul remains in a state of rest, My soul remains in a state of of ease, of repose. And God will redeem my soul in peace from the bitter battle which is against me. Because many are they which strive against me. Now, do you have many that strive against you? I do. (laughs) Let me just tell you, there are many. You may not know it. That's a revelation for you. There are many that don't like you. Big revelation. Marion. lots of people don't like you. Right? Big revelation. But you've got to position your heart in reference even to your enemies that I will ensure and I will call upon God to redeem my soul in a state of peace amidst whatever relational challenge I face. My soul will come out unscathed, unaffected. Rest. And remember we said a soul at rest, a soul at peace, is the soul that is positioned to prosper. So I wish above all things that you prosper and be in good health, even as your. So the the, the 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 attack against the soul is to inflict hurt on the soul, so that the soul can have all these negative emotional states. And when your soul is not prospering, you can forget about every other expression of prosperity. Hmm? So can you see how subtle the enemy is? Right, he wants to inflict hurt upon you so that you won't prosper think of joseph hey eh? if anyone was the was a candidate um, for baggage <laughs> it was joseph if anyone the enemy uh could have messed up and aborted god's plans in his life would have been joseph right jealous he suffered jealousy by his brothers betrayal hatred anger a reduced value they sold him for how much 20 pieces of silver, right? At least Jesus sold for 30. This guy was sold for 20, right? So they diminished his value. They put a price tag on his life. Betrayal, and then you go to a foreign land, and uh, the wife of the, the president falsely accuses you. False accusation, right? Goes into prison, interprets the guy's dream, says to the butler, when you go out and you are restored, please remember me. Next verse, and the butler forgot him. <laughs> I mean, this is a this is a betrayed guy, suffered jealousy, reduced value, a forgotten guy. How many people have forgotten you? Who feels like you, the forgotten one? Right? I think Joseph sitting in prison must be thinking to himself, "I just use my prophetic gift to unveil this guy's future, and next breath he forgets me, uses me, and and you know." If anyone had reason to be an emotional, soulish wreck, would have been Joseph. But what did he do consistently? I mean, the final test was looked at brothers and says to them, literally in, the, in my own words, I forgive you. You didn't sell me. God sent me. What does the man do? Con- and why does this man prosper the way he does? The will of God for his life prospers. He prospers in every single dimension. Guess what Joseph did consistently? This verse would apply to him. He redeems my soul in peace from everyone that strives with me. Right? I want to encourage you, keep your soul. Keep your soul at peace. You will never prosper without peace. Haggai 2 verse 9 says the following. Verse 6 to 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and also the... Dry land. I will shake all the nations and they will come with what? With the wealth of the nations and I will fill this house with glory. Everyone say glory. Now we know the glory re- refers to the reputation of the Lord. Not so? Um, the exact representation of the nature of God. Now God says, I'm going to shake nations. In the context of shaking nations, we'll take the wealth of the nations. I'm gonna bring it to my house. I'll fill this house with the wealth of the nations. Right? The house will be filled with glory, and simultaneously God says, I fill the house with the wealth of the nations. So wealth is always connected to glory. Next verse the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the the former, says the Lord of hosts. And everyone say and. and and in this place I will give peace. Right, you can never ever divorce in the Scripture the record of prosperity, the record of success, the record of wealth, and there's no peace. God, con- and we, this is um, there's quite a few scriptures we read in reference to this now. Right, you see wealth, and you also see peace. And if we are going to prosper in all respects, it's going to be because of the state of peace. Right now. Remember Zechariah 8.12, the first part? There will be peace for the seed. The CV version says, your crops are planted in peace. Seeds will thrive in peace, time. And in a few studies ago, I said to you, the the way in which this verse is framed in those versions tell us that you need the spatial context of peace for you to sow any kind of seed in, then those seeds prosper. So the environment has got to be one of peace. So God says, I will give you peace for the seed. Right. So God is looking for a habitation of, of peace. Remember Isaiah 32, 17 and 18? God says the work of righteousness will be peace. Right. And God says, and I will give my people a peaceful habitation. Right, so God is always looking for a peaceful habitation. Can I ask you a question? How's your home? Ask your neighbor. How's your home? <laughs> ask him. Is it a peaceful habitation? Your home must be filled with the peace of God. I'm talking about the the, the relationships in the home must be um, peaceful. Otherwise, you're going to abort. Any kind of seed you so God says, I give you peace for the seed. For your seed to strife, the the spatial context, the sphere, has got to be peace. Now turn over the page. But, everyone say but. But, the way in which the same verse is framed in other versions of the Bible suggests something differently. Now, for example, Zechariah 8.12a in the ESV says, For there will be the sowing of peace. Right? Young's literal translation says, because of the sowing of peace. Right? The ASV says, there shall be the seed of peace. So the sowing of peace, the sowing of peace, and the seed of peace. God's not saying, I give you peace for the seed. Now it's a bit different. He's saying, I will give you the seed of peace. In other words, it is, it is something, peace itself, Is the seed that you need to sow. You need to sow seeds of peace to um, result in a habitation of peace, peaceful actions, peaceful attitudes. Right? Uh, You'll see a verse later on in the study which says, Paul says, Pursue the things that make for peace. Right? Pursue things that make for peace. Some of you are pursuing things that make for division. Schism. You're pursuing the wrong attitude. You're pursuing the wrong um, conversation. And there's always strife, there's tension, there's arguments. You're not pursuing the things that make for peace, right? So pursue the things that make for peace. Take a seed, call it peace. Say, I'm sowing my seed of peace today. And you know what? Whenever you sow seed, what do you reap? What do you reap? A harvest, and you know the harvest is always greater than the original seed sown. The little, uh, let me say it like this I really believe in the present season, the little efforts we are going to make in terms of fostering peace is going to come back to us. Double portion. Right? Give and it shall be given. What shall be given? I heard this from John Hagee the other day. What shall be given? Say it. He says, Give and it. What shall be given? What's the it there? Whatever you're given. So you given. You can't expect something to return to you that you have not initiated. It is coming back to you. That it is whatever you have sown. Right? Give and it shall be. You, you reap commensurate with how you have sown. He who desires friends must show himself to be. Friendly, scripture says, right? You must, if if you lack friends, just sow some friend seeds, (laughs) okay? Um, Be kind, be gracious, right? Bless people. If you're complaining no one wishes you on your birthday, guess what? Collect everybody's dates of birth and just wish them. I'm sowing, I'm sowing birthday wishes, right? Go to town. Everyone say, eat, right? Give and eat. Whatever you've given, that it is coming back to you. The harvest will be greater than the original seed sown. So, what we must sow is peace. Now, quickly, I'm going to run to the next section because I've tried to make these notes as complete as possible for your understanding. Some some segments are not essential for us to really labor in terms of speaking. It's just there for your own sort of fullness of comprehension. But, I believe there are at least four levels of peace. Firstly, peace with peace with God. 2 Peter 3:14 says, "Therefore, beloved, since you look for the things, for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless." So it speaks to your personal relationship with the Lord. Second level is peace in your mind. And emotions. You can write their soul. Right? Peace in your mind and emotions. That is, um, when you are whole, there's no bitterness, unforgiveness, no anger, acrimony, etc. And I quoted you Psalm 55, verse 18. He deems my soul in peace. This is a soul full with the peace of God. Third level is peace within yourself in the midst of trial, difficulty, or personal crisis. Now we've dealt with this extensively. When we did the rest for the soul. Not soul. Okay. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Um, it says we must be anxious for nothing. But in everything by. Pray and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the God of peace. Which passes all comprehension. Will guard to areas. Your heart and your mind. The key word is anxious for you to avoid anxiety at any level, any kind of worry. Let your request be made known unto God with gratitude, thanksgiving, abounding in thanksgiving. And it says the peace of God kicks in, keeping two dimensions, both your heart and your and your mind. Second Thessalonians 3.16 says, Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace. Like this verse, eh? May the Lord of peace you see, he can give peace because he's a lord of peace. Prince of peace. God of peace. He, he will grant you peace, not in some circumstances, in? So no matter what you go through in life, you can function at this level where, in, as far as my soul is concerned, I'm, I'm composed. I'm in equilibrium. Despite the, the intensity of my trial. External circumstances. It says, in every circumstance, I can be peaceful. Now, Question, are you there? Tell your neighbor, are you there? Because you know what? We've been teaching some of these things for a while now. And I want you to master them. Right? Um, remain calm in a crisis. Remain calm in your most greatest need. Remain calm and practice the peace of God. It's the most empowering, powering uh, position that we can we can ever come to. Okay, those three levels are fine. Peace with God, peace in your soul, peace within yourself in the midst of the most trying circumstances. But the fourth level is what we want to focus on, is functioning now as a peacemaker. To function at level four <laughs> means you've mastered the first three. Now, I mean, you are now the embodiment of peace. Peace is your middle name, your surname, maybe some of your, fir- your first name, right? You are the shalom of God. Okay? Do you know when the Jews greet each other, what do they say? Shalom. Well, we say right? They say shalom. And you know what? Their shalom is not just, are you at peace? Their greeting is an impartation of peace. They're saying, peace be with you. Okay? Shalom. It was the giving off of, of peace. You, you wonder... You, why the Jews are so blessed. One of the wealthiest people in the earth today is the Jews. They literally control the finances of the entire world. Right? You examine their culture. They insist that they function by peace. Have you seen a Jew? Even though these, um, not messianic Jews, but Jews, generally. They're very peaceful people. Look at them calm, controlled. Hey? So I want to encourage you to practice this. Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. Don't fall to pieces. Remain at peace. Even your most volatile circumstance. Because my challenge to you tonight, the expectation of the Lord on you now is, you've got to be a peacemaker between people. So if anybody is at loggerheads with you personally, or if there are rival factions or or parties outside of you, and you you are called in to arbitrate and to reconcile people, you are in a position of great power to do that. And I really feel in this house, the mandate upon us is to function as reconcilers. We've had this prophecy from various independent prophetic voices. Not so. God has called us to the ministry of reconciliation. And for us to function reconciliatory, we have to position ourselves as peacemakers. Amen? Not peace breakers, peacemakers. I want to encourage you. You see, as a man thinks, so is he. This must become a disposition, a mental disposition. Ricardo, you've got to see yourself as a peacemaker. Right? Perhaps when you wake up in the morning, look at yourself in the mirror and say, Peacemaker. Right? It's like every day you wake up and you say, okay, who's going to get my anointing of peacemaking today? Who can I help? Moira at work. I, you may be doing your work in your context. God put you in an environment to be the peacemaking element there. Right? It's like when there's tension and division and problems and schisms, even in the workplace, your colleagues must know if anyone can arbitrate here, let's call that son of God. Because their very disposition is that of making peace. You know, to get there, you can't have a reputation then for being the peace breaker in the workplace. Right? you are going to be above reproach. Not so? Right? And this is a very tall order. Challenging. Okay? Tall order, it's challenging. But I want to encourage you Remember, uh, Melchizedek, what does Melchizedek mean? The meaning of his name is? Malchi, king, Malchi. Zedek means what? Righteousness, Zedek, righteousness. He is king of what? King of right, Malchi Zedek, king of righteousness, and Hebrew says, and also he is king of peace, because he rules over which city? Salem, Jerusalem later, but Salem, From the Hebrew. Shalom. So he rules over the domain of peace. Right? Lord you reign over righteousness. Michael wrote that song. Righteousness. Written from that study. I know he wrote the song from the study of Mark. Lord you reign over righteousness in me. When I'm righteous in loving, giving. This is your territory. Right? The domain over which you get the kingship and the governance of God is always righteousness and loving peace. So if you can function as a peace bringer, it's another term in the scripture, a peacemaker, guess what? You're going to recruit the the governance of the king in your world. You're going to be like a Melchizedek. Amen? You ready for this? Uh, let me ask you again, are you ready for this? If you don't want to, we'll stop right here, go home. <laughs> it's fine. Everyone say yes. Right? Now, now, are you ready to die? Yes? Still ready? <laughs> okay. This is going to cost us everything. It's going to cost us everything. Look at James 3.18 quickly. The NLT version, really loving the New Living Translation. If you don't have this version, please get one. Make it part of your library of study. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace. Now, it says, those who are peacemakers do what? What do peacemakers do? They go about planting seeds of peace. right? Seeds of peace. And what do they reap? A harvest of peace. Righteousness. Do you remember we did the study where we, 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 we listed all the blessings of righteousness? The blessings of prosperity associated with, with righteousness. Remember? Right? And so, if you sow seeds of peace, your harvest is righteousness. And wherever you have righteousness, you have the attendant divine blessing. The reward, the success. All the multiple blessings associated with the righteous life will come your way. The NASB, my preferred version of study, says, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, if you look on the next page, I try to just graphically depict uh, in a flow diagram. At the top, peacemakers sow seeds of peace relationally they produce a harvest of righteousness you can check all the scriptures out when you get home that right, harvest of righteousness results in peaceful environments remember isaiah 32, 17 says the work of righteousness will be peace and i'll give my people a peaceful habitation right so that righteousness produces a peaceful environment and where you have a peaceful environment you have the ideal condi- conditions conducive for success and prosperity. Okay? Success and prosperity. So, think about it like this. You're going to sow seeds of peace. Those seeds of peace, these are seeds of peace relationally, either between you and others or you're helping others live peaceably. What you're going to generate in your world is a harvest of righteousness. Right? God will see that and give you a peaceful habitation. And where you have a peaceful habitation, you have the construct or the structure within your life sufficient to contain every element of success and prosperity in your life. Right? Remember Psalm 122? What does it say? Uh, Let there be peace where? Where must peace be? Where? Within your wall. So there's the wall around the the your 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 palace or whatever it says let there be peace within so the environment must be peace and what must be in the palace and prosperity within your palace so prosperity is contained within the environment of of peace okay now here's the psalm um, that I quoted earlier Psalm 119 verse 165 says uh, those that love thy law have great peace and nothing causes them To stumble. That's the NASB, if you want to just add it in there. The King James says, Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. What does nothing mean? Right? Greek word for nothing is nothing. Or Hebrew word. It means zilch, zonke, nothing. Nothing is going to offend the brother who loves the law of the Lord. Because, and if you love God's word, it presupposes that you obey God's word. You read it, you prioritize it in your devotional life, you're studying it, uh, you live obediently. That depicts your love for the word of the Lord. The Bible says if you live like that, then you come to live in a realm which is called mega peace. It does not say, and the brother or the person will have peace. It says, this person has what kind of peace? You must check this word out in the, the Hebrew. I forget what's in the Hebrew, but it indicates. Oh yes, it indicates. I remember now. Profuse abundance. It's like lush. It's like a, a bountiful foliage. Right? This is mega. This is not just your ordinary level. Right? This is. If something is is imposing, big in its magnitude, it is. You you can't afford but to notice it. Not so. It is notable. I really want to encourage you. Let your peace start to show. Tell your neighbor, let your peace start to show. Now, you know where it can show? Tell your neighbor, it must show on your face. Some people I look at, they say, I got peace. But I'm saying, your face is telling me another story. At least, if you got it, tell your face about it. Let your face manifest. So, and you know, the, the, the testimony, your testimony will be, can be one day. You, you are this the embodiment of peace. It exudes in everything about you. And then the person finds out, but you are in your greatest trial ever. And that's when you prove to the world that in all, like we're in, in all circumstances, the Lord of peace himself will grant you peace. Right? That is when you have mastered peace. Like Jesus, you have the ability to sleep on a pillow at the back part of the boat, Mark says, in the storm. Totally at rest, right? And so when, when he's mastered internal peace, he can command external peace in his environment. Stands up and he says, peace be still. You can't command peace to your habitation until you've mastered peace in your inward world. Right? So he who has the authority to command peace, storms, peace, peace, storm, is the brother or the sister who has learned the art of sleeping in the storm. Can't speak to the storm unless you first learn to sleep in the storm. Okay, Apostle Thomas and I do taught us. that. Very, very important. Your, your empowerment in the spirit is your ability to sleep, uh, to rest, to be in absolute repose in the most difficult and trying circumstances. In your greatest need, you can still see you and you're smiling. Yet inside, uh, not inside, you really mastered peace in your soul. But externally, you're in great need, great lack, great trial. But you are still the embodiment of peace. So tell your neighbor, look at the face of peace. The face of peace. Shalom. I think, Renee, if we get another pet, it must be called Shalom. The principles we're about to share with you come from God's Word. And I'm saying to you, if you love these principles, you love God's Word, great will be your peace. Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall by any means offend them. Okay, Um, You might have great reason to be offended, but you're not offended because you've mastered this disposition of, of peace. Classic peace scripture is Matthew 5. 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called what? Sons of God. Right? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Above the word sons, you want to write the Greek uios. It's spelled in two ways. We can use the one spelling H um, U I O S. Okay? And you know what does uios mean? Means mature son. Right? Do you know the scripture? Uh, John 1:12. As many as received him, to them he gave the power to be called the the sons or the children of God. The word sons or children there is what in the Greek? Technon, right? Technon. So yes, the, yes, not the problem. Let's compare the two verses of Scripture. If you receive him into your heart, you become the son of God. Matthew 5 says, on the other hand, if you are a peacemaker, you are called the son of God. So when are you the son of God? So a simple When you receive Christ, you are the technon of God. You're not the mature son. You simply have the legal right to call yourself son. You're in the family. You're in the kingdom. But, you know, there are about five stages of development in sonship. If I remember correctly, it was nepios. Greek word nepios, infant. Then pydon, technon. Uios, mature son. There's one level beyond yours, pate, father. when the son, the mature son, can now function in a fatherly position. Right? Because you've seen the son, you've seen the, the father. The, the word that's used in Matthew 5 9 is the description of a fully grown, mature son. So, how is spiritual maturity and spiritual perfection defined in this verse? Your divine sonship in maturity. Is characterized and noted, it's expressed by your capacity to make peace. Now, who wants to get to this level of maturity? You know, I always love this verse. I love all the beatitudes. No, oh, blessed are the poor in heart, da da, da da da. But blessed are the peacemakers. Because when you function in a peacemaking operation, God looks at you and says, Yay, yeah, my son. Not just my son, not just in the kingdom but you represent one of the bigger brothers. You represent one of the monks, those which are mature, perfect, okay? So, ask your neighbor, are you the son of God that makes peace? Um, Are you the mature son? Ask them, are you the perfect son? Are you the perfect son? Perfected sonship is defined by your capacity to make peace. Now, look at from verse 43 onwards. Same passage. Remember Jesus was on some mountain here. Yeah? It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Three chapters, he does not stop speaking. Long chapters. This is like an extended Bible study. <laughs> right. You thought we were long, Must go to Jesus' Bible studies and see. <laughs> right? Um, it seemed, and a lot of theologians feel it was over like a weekend kind of thing. A discourse. The closest... That Jesus ever came to delivering some kind of manifesto for the kingdom. Rules for kingdom living. Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. And do you know in all three ch- chapters the main thing he deals with? Relationships. Right? All kinds of relationships. You must study the chapters. And in verse 43 he says, listen carefully. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I love this. So that you might be sons. Please, camp there. Tell you never Salah. It's a serial moment. Pause. Don't even stop. Don't even carry on reading. Think of the profundity of that statement. He's saying, don't only love your, your, your brews, your neighbor's. Love even your enemies. And then the Lord says, for then you are my sons. Serious. Your sonship, let me just try and capture it. Your sonship is defined by your attitude to an enemy. Your sonship is expressed by your disposition to your greatest persecutor. Let me just encourage you. If you can look and love your greatest enemy, I really believe the Lord will. Lord will, applaud you. Lord will say to you, check my UIOS in the air. In other words, you are exhibiting Christ-like qualities that infant sons in God are incapable of performing. It says, now it's like God saying, you are just like me. Now you're operating just like I would have reacted in that situation. Please repeat after me. Say, so that you will be sons of your Father. That's a very, very important statement. You react to your enemy in a biblically appropriate manner so that you will be sons of your Father. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the sons of God. For He causes His Son to rise on evil and on good, and He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you only love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? If you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And here's the statement. Therefore, be perfect. Listen carefully. As your heavenly Father is perfect. Everyone say perfection. Say spiritual maturity. Note how God defines perfection. Note how God defines spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity or spiritual perfection is couched within the context of loving an enemy. Then God says, for then you are mature. For then you are fully grown. When you can love those that hate you. Love those that despitefully use you. Say it again. Spiritual perfection or spiritual maturity. James defines it like this, the top of page 4, James 3, 2. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, should circle or underline the word stumble in what he says, and then underline perfect man. Perfect man. You want to be a perfect man, mature, perfect woman, right? Then you must practice not... Stumbling in your words. Practice perfected speech. Practice perfected speech. All right? Now I said to you on Sunday, I, I know I will know when you have reached perfection relationally. How do I test that? I test that by examining two things the spirit of your conversations and the content of your conversations what you say, and in what attitude you say. James says, if a man is able to speak perfectly, that man is spiritually mature. If a man is able to listen carefully, speak, and he does not trip up or err, or, or stumble in what he says, that man is spiritually mature. Right? So all you need to do, is give me a tape recording of last month's conversations, all the conversations you've had with everybody. Let me listen to it. And I'll tell you. Let me use Evie, I'll say Evie is mature, is not mature, based on what I'm hearing. Your words give you away. Your words are the litmus test, the acid test, for judging whether you are spiritually mature or or not. You know, this is a tall order. Because everywhere I go, I'm still hearing, spiritual immaturity, no perfection. Hey, You know, this is like, you might say, too high for us to attain. But I want to encourage you, Matthew 5.48, be perfect. Be perfect. This is not a suggestion anymore. I'm even past kindly trying to encourage you. I command you, Be perfect in your speech. Get this right. Demonstrate the fact that I can be a spiritually sober, mature, fully grown son of God. Because I have the correct responses in all my relationships. And it's evidence how I talk about people. Especially people with whom I'm having strife or tension in relationships. Hmm? then you are mature. Hmm? I want to speak about salt briefly. Um, Mark 9 verse 50 or rather Matthew 5.13 verse says um, a very really well-known portion of scripture. You are the salt of the earth. Not so? Okay, so you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And um, when you think of salt, it has the following qualities. It's possesses preservation or preserving purifying perpetuating and also antiseptic qualities not so salt preserves meat for example prevents decay salt can purify certain elements right ensures perpetuity of of some food items and also acts as an antiseptic okay So, salt, when the scripture says you are the salt of the earth, um, all of these things you should be. You should be the preserver, the purifier, the perpetuator, and the antiseptic quality in the earth. You are. Everyone say you. So, always remember salt is a person. Tell your neighbor you are are salt. Tell them just don't turn into a pillar of salt, (laughs) like Lot's wife. I'm not talking about that kind of salt. I'm talking about you and your disposition. You are the salt of the earth. Now, salt was also emblematic or indicative of fidelity and friendship. You should underline that. Salt was also emblematic of fidelity. Um, that's commitment, covenantal commitment. And friendship amongst Eastern nations. So, the phrase, to eat of a person's salt is to share his hospitality. It's still regarded as so amongst the Arabs. Right? So tell you, never, I would like to eat your salt. So it's a phrase that the, the Eastern nations, the Arabs use. To eat a person's salt is to share his hospitality. It indicates warmth, love, peaceful friendship, a lovely environment of, of, of peaceful relationships. Amen? On Friday night, we ate um, vanilla salt. We ate of our salt and Clinton, right? Um, in a supper that they, that they warmly um, treated us to. That was to be hospitable, right? So you can see how the word is used. It's always used relationally. Now, Mark 9 verse 50 confirms this. It says, salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt within yourselves, comma, and be at peace one with another. Right? So you can see two things side by side. Now, Matthew says, you are the salt. Mark 9 says, have salt in yourself and be at peace with one Another. So the salt characteristic of the Son of God is directly related to there being peace between them. If you say that you are the salt of the earth. So next time you say that statement, I am the salt of the earth. Guess what you are saying? I am the person committed to peaceful relationships. In fact, your salt power will only be seen in the earth once you master relationships. You can say all you want to, I'm the salt of the earth, salt of the earth, salt of the earth. But if you have no salt in yourself, and Mark explains it, by having peace with one another, you have just unsalted yourself. And you need to be assaulted. So, tell your neighbor, don't lose your saltiness. Your power... To function as the salt of the earth is directly dependent upon your capacity to live peaceably with one another. I'm just reading your note there. What causes us to lose our saltiness is tensions, strife, divisions in God-ordained relationships. Listen carefully. If there's no peace, there's no salt. Salt symbolically refers to harmonious covenantal relationships. So, Guess what amplifies your salt power as a son of God? Your capacity to live peacefully with men. That is when you are the salt of the earth. Right? So now you know what the salt of the earth means. Next time the person says, we are the salt of the earth. Biblically, you know, it's the commitment to live peaceably with the brothers that amplifies your salt power. Now, the term covenant of salt bears relevance here. Numbers 18, 19, I don't want to labor this point because we dealt with the covenant of salt when we did the teaching of the first fruits. But uh, you must read to get the context from verse 1. I'm just quoting verse 19. From verse 1 to verse 18, God speaks to the high priest and basically says to him over and over and over again, all the offerings and the first fruits, but the people of Israel, God says continuously to him, it shall be yours for an eternal allotment. It shall be yours. Three or four times. The gifts and the offerings they bring, God says, to the high priest, they will bring to you and it shall be yours and to your sons forever. And then in verse 19, as God rounds off this discussion, he says, all the offerings of the holy gifts, which the sons of Israel offer to the Lord, I have given to you and to your sons and your daughters with you as a perpetual allotment. It is an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord to you and to your descendants for forever. Go to the next page quickly. So the people give, let's say, first fruits to the high priest and God saying, in my mind, God saying, this is to you. An everlasting covenant of salt. The high priest was God's duly elect representative before the people. He represented God in their eyes. Them giving Him first fruits and offerings literally was them giving it to the Lord. He represented God um, in their world. Okay? And so, them, by their gifts, they showed their connectedness. To the grace of God in his life. Right? They showed their covenantal loyalty to serving the purposes of God under him. Even like we do so today, where sons of God will, as an expression of honor and respect for the grace of God vested in their spiritual father, will minister unto them offerings, first fruits, etc. Right? So they were bound, and God says, This is an eternal. Everyone say perpetual. It, it, it's like inviolable, indissoluble, cannot be broken, never to be violated. Contract or covenant between two parties. So, wherever the term covenant of salt is used, it always indicates the permanence of the relationship. Always in, indicates that this relationship is so serious that we, we are committed. It's like marriage, right? I've, I've conducted two marriage ceremonies now where the couple that were married did the exchange of the covenant of salt. Uh, in Eastern uh, cultures and some Hebrew cultures today, it's still practiced. Google it when you get on covenant of salt. See some clips on YouTube on how this is still enacted in marriages. So um, after the vows are exchanged, each couple, remember Carla was married, we did this at Carla's wedding, each couple, the groom has container of salt and the bride-to-be has the container of salt. They're separate containers. The third container is held by the priest. So the couple is asked jointly to pour their two respective measures of salt into the one container simultaneously. So the salts become mixed. Then the priest would say okay, that's mixed and he say to, the, to, the, to each party, now you take your salt out and you take your salt out—literally an impossible task. So the covenant of salt was always used to indicate strong commitment to relationship. It's a covenantal commitment, right? Inviolable contract. And you can see at the bottom of the third paragraph there. In this, there is participation, partnership, preservation, protection, privilege, and the pledge of covenantal commitment, etc. Now ask your neighbor, do you still have salt? In other words, if you are a salty person, okay? so next time, tell the person, don't be faulty, be salty. Okay? Don't act faulty, act salty. Salty means I am I'm a covenantal, highly rel- relational, peaceful man. Right? Don't go along looking for trouble or offending people unnecessarily. I'm I'm salted. Right now, how is that again reflected? Salt scripturally is also indicative of speech that is graceful. Again, I'm going to come back to how James frames perfection in terms of perfected speech. You claim to be salted, I want to hear the salt in your speech. Colossians 4, classic verse 5 says, Conduct yourself with wisdom towards. Outsiders, making the most of every opportunity, let your speech be with grace, seasoned as it were with what? With salt, so that you might know how to respond to each person. Now, you know what salt represents. Now, peaceful relationships, commitment to covenantal loyalty, unbreakable, uh, inviolable, indissoluble. covenantal commitments in all of your relationships. A strong relational person. Then uh, Paul is saying, let your speech be with grace, seasoned with salt. Paraphrase, seasoned with your commitment to peaceful relationships. And it says, everyone that hears you will be brought up. You're going to minister grace to the hearers, not so. Ephesians says it like this, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 25. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only a word which is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Whenever you speak, people must testify, that person's speech is salted. That person's speech is full of grace. And even if you're in the company and you're talking about there's the there's potential or temptation to malign someone's good character, and you're there, the way you respond and your contribution, you what does salt do to decay? Arrest. Your contribution, when the testimony of that group must be, we were on a scandalous path, Deriding and maligning brother X, but when Matthew spoke, the salt stopped the entire process. You are the salt, and you manifested by your speech. I will know whether you are salted by listening to your words. It's so simple. You know your words give you away, eh? right? If relation, let me say it paraphrases. If relationships. And perfecting relationships is the final frontier, the penultimate leg, Hebron before Zion. And if that is what we must secure, and if our commitment to that is evidenced by our speech, then we must give attention to the words of our mouth. Amen? How we talk about individuals. Okay. Well, by the way, you are the salt of what? What does the Bible say, Matthew? You are the salt of the. See how big your mandate is? Your mandate is to salt the earth. You're not the salt of your local church. <laughs> you're not the salt of Durban. You're not the salt of Zikufle. <laughs> you're, the, you're not the salt of Chatsworth. You're the salt of the earth. Let me just say this. If you understand that my mandate is, is big, that I must position myself in such purity because God's going to use me globally. If you've got the earth in view, then you will give more urgent attention to how you, how you speak. Amen. We want to be used all over the earth, globally. Amen. We all want to. Amen. We have a we have a global uh, desire to affect nations, baptizing nations. But God is only going to use those who have perfected their speech. Amen. Okay, page six. This, for me, the next passage we're about to read is probably one of the most important in this, in this segment. Just love this portion of scripture. I've entitled this Representative Power to Reconcile Our Ministry of Reconciliation. Let's read this scripture thoughtfully and with understanding. Allow the Spirit of the Lord to awaken your understanding as we read it. You, you know the context. But read it as though you've never ever read it before. Read it with, with, with fresh and virgin mind. Um, verse fourteen of Second Corinthians chapter five. For the love of Christ compels us. What compels us? So when you operate in reconciliation, what is pushing you? Inwardly, it's the love of it's not you, it's Christ's love in you that is operating. You're operating beyond your own capacity, you're operating by the power of the love of Christ in you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. Write there, a representation. So it's like, if one does it, God says, all have done it. All do not have to do it, but if the one does it, God reckons it as though all have done it. One died, so all have died. All right? That's why I use the caption. Representative power to reconcile. You are not doing it. It is Christ in you. And when you do it, your individual efforts and attempts are going to have ramifications far beyond you. It's going to affect positively a whole range of people because you've entered into the power of representative function. Okay? Um, I don't want to go too much into that right now. Verse 15. He died for all, and that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one after the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. What Paul is saying here, You must read this verse in other versions. Some of the versions say, we do not have a natural, humanistic, or earthly perspective concerning people. So, I know nobody after the flesh. Paul says, even though we knew Christ that way, he was an historical Jew that lived on the earth for 33 and a half years. He walked the earth. We don't know him after his um, historical Jewish settings. We know Christ after the Spirit. So Paul is saying, you yeah, listen carefully. He's saying, when you look at people, don't judge them by externalities. Don't judge them in the flesh. Don't don't judge them by gender, by race, by social standing, by economic class, um, by racial background, or whichever. Don't look at ex. In other words, that's one thing. But now, listen carefully. We are functioning as peacemakers. So the brother offended you. The brother was wrong. The sister was wrong. They are guilty as charged. You even have proof that they did things deliberately to trip you up. The challenge now is to not judge them after their flesh. That's the challenge. Don't judge them based on failings of their natural man. That's a big challenge. You know why? Because later on, let's just get to the end quickly. Look at verse 18. All things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us what? Come on, say it loud. What has God given to us? A ministry of what? Ask your neighbor answer each other. Ask them, what is your ministry? Give them the answer. This is my new answer. People come, what's my ministry Past, I'll say, the Bible says in, in, in 2 Corinthians 5, 18, everybody has a ministry. The ministry is salt. The ministry is peacemaking. The ministry is to be a reconciler. Right? Now, if you're going to function like that, right, You, when you view your brother, listen carefully, you can't, you can't, Assess your brother based on his failure historically. He failed in the past, right? So you don't reckon him after his failure. If you truly are godlike, and this is this is really getting tougher and tougher as we go along, if you really are mature, I would then say this to you. I was discussing um, somebody. I don't know where it was it was last year, sometime a few months ago. So it was a conversation. We were in the lounge. And a name came up. right? And the person did something um, that basically uh, put a question mark on his reputation, etc. And so we were going around. And so the person asked, Randolph, what do you say? And then I gave a response. Not, not, it wasn't a scandalous thing. It was mature brethren talking. Guys, I know. I gave a response. And after one minute of talking, I said, you know what, guys? You asked me for my response. Um, Let me just say, the crime was murder. It wasn't murder, but I'm just using... The crime was murder. My response should have been, what murder? What murder are we talking about? I should have forgotten the offense in my mind if I was truly spiritual. You know why? Because when when that murderer confessed their sin, God says, not even I remember it. You're remembering something I have forgotten. Yes. Now you're busy in discussion about somebody's offense that I have removed as far as the east is from the west because the brother has repented and I've remem- I removed this sin, no, I remember it no more. Right? So next time you're tempted to, to, to say your 2 cents piece and the person asks for your comment, You say, I don't know really what we're talking about. Because uh, I've forgiven the person in my heart and I don't view them based on their failing in the flesh. That is why. And you know, we love to quote the scripture, verse 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is what? He is a new creation. All things are passed away. And behold, all things are become new right? All things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. You are still judging the person as though he's not in Christ. When, in fact, if the person repented, he's reconciled completely. So your challenge is don't view him, the brother or the sister, after their historical failing. This, I will say, I I, I present to you is a tall order. It's something you must trust God. I need to be like you, Father. Because I need to relate to the offended or the offensive party. That person offended me as though the offense never ever took place. Because if if I commit murder today and I repent truly from my heart tomorrow and the next day I come to God and says, remember the murder, God said, what are you talking about? Because I have forgotten. When God forgives, he, he wipes your slate clean. You know, give the person a brand new start. Amen. This is hard. It's not easy. I'm walking this road myself, right, relating to people. It's, 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 it's difficult. But let me just say, if, if you are going to be the sons of God, if you're going to be the Ueos, if you're going to be sons of your Father in the earth, if you, if you want your soul power to come to the fore, I want to encourage you, perfect your relationships. Key is, when you look and you think, or you see the person, do not regard them after the flesh. Do not regard them after their failing in the flesh. Now, yes, verse 19, I really like it. So, we all have the ministry of reconciliation, that is. That is, the word that is, like Paul is about to, to tell you and to give you explanation to how this ministry of reconciliation, this this peaceful disposition in you is going to play itself out. He says, and he's using Christ as an example. He says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespass against them, and has committed to us. I love this. I should have highlighted it. The word. It's all about speech. It's the word of reconciliation. Again, it comes to the words of your mouth. The word of reconciliation. So, listen carefully. Jesus was the Christ. Paul says this in in one of his letters. Christ embraces the fullness of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus, in his bodily form, was the bodily uh, representation of the entirety of the Godhead. The scripture says, all of the Godhead dwelt in him bodily. The Greek word for bodily is corporeally. right? In a corporeal fashion, the fullness in his flesh, he was able to represent Father, Son, and Spirit. Now it says, listen carefully, when he died and he paid the price for sin, it says God was in Christ reconciling the world back to himself. Christ was simply, Jesus was simply the body. So when he hung on the cross... Yes, the Son paid the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. But that's why everyone say representative. He becomes the representative conduit. He he put his body up, but in his body was the fullness of Christ, the fullness of God in Christ. Everyone say God in Christ. It's difficult to explain this. It wasn't like just the Father sent the Son to go do the job. I'll stand aloof. For the Son came and they vested in the Son. It says God was in Christ, reconciling the world back to Himself. So, how do you function when you now position yourself? You say, Lord, as Christ offered his body to be used for reconciliatory function, yes, my body. Yes, me. use me. You see, it's not about you, it's about the power of Christ in you that's gonna do the reconciling. Don't don't think. Charon, hey, you must be saying, Pastor, I've heard you all your teachings thus far, but this one is the great is the this one is such a hard, a hard thing. Let me just say this. I think, you know, when I was preparing this, this is like my Jabbok. This <laughs> this series is my personal Jabbok. If ever I've been emptied, it has been the past few weeks. Right? Okay? If ever I've been poured out. This has been like Jacob. Jacob crossed his jabok. This has been my jabok. Right? So, um, even now, you know, don't become tense if you're called like to a meeting to sort out an issue. Don't be nervous. Don't be tense. Don't be scared. All you say to yourself is, "I am just going to provide the body. I'll come." And Lord, you, the entirety of the Godhead, come and vest yourself in me. Uh, Use my faculties, use my mind, use my emotions, use my speech, but let every expression of my body be you. So you're functioning representatively on God's behalf. God was in Christ, reconciling the world back to himself. Now then, everyone say "Now now then. Now then we are ambassadors. And what do ambassadors do? They represent the country in a foreign land. (laughs) You are representatives of Christ. As though, listen carefully, powerful words. As though God were pleading through us. Can you see it? It's like you're just there, but God is doing all the pleading to be reconciled through you. You have the problem with the brother you want to, or the sister, and you want to reconcile. And when you go, you say, "Father, I really want to be obedient." I go, but you plead through me. Let your power work and flow through me. Amen. So remember, it's not about you. It's not even dependent upon your spiritual development. If you can just position yourself obediently, you will see this pleading power of God working into you, in and through you, come to the fore. And He says, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Here's the thing. Verse 21 is probably the most dangerous. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Um, The righteousness of God in him. So, when you position yourself to operate reconciliatory, you literally position yourself to be crucified. You say, I trust my Jehovah. I am dead to self. I have no reputation to uphold. I have nothing to keep my name. Um, all I want to be is obedient to you, Father. So, yeah am I. Okay. The last um, sentence in that paragraph. Therefore, focus not so much on your own ability to reconcile, but tap into the power provided by Christ in you. For you, for only He, is able to reconcile all things to Himself. You'll find that in Colossians 1.20. By Him to reconcile all things to Himself. Right? Whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Amen? The Greek word for reconcile is, reconcile is, Dialaso, and it means to change thoroughly, that is mentally, to conciliate, to make different. But I like this meaning, to change the mind, right? to reconcile, to renew friendship. So if you look at the meanings there, in, in terms of the Greek understanding, reconcile has much to do with changing mindsets, right? changing the way of thinking. Have you ever thought in a situation where you thought you'd never ever reconcile with that person? And then, a year later, you reconcile. Guess what? The only thing that happened is you changed your mind. Yeah. <laughs> the word "dielaso" means literally to conciliate, to reconcile mentally first. Right? It's about a mental conciliation. Right? As a man thinks, so easy. You've got to think that you have the power to be reconciliatory. Right? If you think and you say to your mind, me and that one are history, never to reconcile, guess what? That's what you'll get. As you think so, are you? right? Your dominant thought becomes the quality of your life. Your dominant thought becomes your life experience. If your dominant thought is, we are finished, guess what? You and that person are finished. But if you can get your mind, your dominant thought to be I want reconciliation. You keep thinking it and praying for your for, for reconciliation. Keep doing it. Reconciliation starts with a mental disposition. You never ever go into an arbitration setting or a meeting where you want to broker peace either between yourself and others with a negative mindset. You always go in with faith. This is gonna work out. Right? Christ in us, the hope of the hope of. Glory. On the next page, quickly. Second paragraph. Let me just read this from the top. I think it's interesting. Sometimes when I write, I capture things while writing that I don't capture while preaching. Then the converse is also true. I capture things sometimes more aptly by talking differently as opposed to writing. But living in reconciliation is really a state of mind. To harbor unforgiveness and bitterness against someone is to have a specific mental disposition towards them. If you can alter the thinking of the unforgiving person, you can administrate reconciliation. The principle of love and forgiveness are to be prioritized in those who function as peacemakers. So if you say I'm a peacemaker, one, uh, 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 next year we'll do all series on love. It's a fantastic s- series on the developing the love of God. Two issues. Mastering love and mastering the principle of forgiveness must be things that are sort of reflexive, effortless for you if you are going to function at this level of peacemaking. Right? Because peacemaking is built on the principle of love and forgiveness. Okay? If you cannot forgive someone on a personal issue, how then can you function as God's representative high priest in forgiving men their sins so as to reconnect them to God himself? Tell your neighbor some things you can't bear now. I was dicing with it to put that statement in the notes. But listen carefully. Forthcoming attraction as representatives of God, as high priests on the earth, we have the power to forgive men their sins. For so say the Scriptures. Jesus said to his men, whose ever sins you remit will be remitted. Whose ever sins you pardon will be, will be pardoned. So I can't say to somebody, "Um, your sins are forgiven. Now, I'm not doing the forgiveness. I'm functioning representatively on Christ's behalf. But Paul says, as though Christ was pleading through me, be reconciled. So I, I have no, con- no contradiction in my mind if I say, your sins be forgiven. Now let me say this, that teaching is going to become a bedrock te- teaching within our context. Now how can you say to, to men that your sins are forgiven, enter the kingdom, when you can't forgive a domestic sin of an offense with a brother. I can't forgive Ricardo because he didn't greet me last week. I saw it, bro. Look at me, I saw it. Didn't greet me last week. Yeah? I was joking, right? <laughs> right? I can't. I'm, I'm losing sleepless nights over he he dissed me, right? And now, on the other hand, I'm, I'm at work and I'm ministering to someone about to usher them into the kingdom, you can't on that level say, your sins be forgiven you, when in your heart, you are harboring unforgiveness on a a relational issue. You see, this this goes a long, long way. Hmm? Your power to administrate the forgiveness of sins to men, to cancel the sin issue in their life, and so reconnect them to God, let them enter the kingdom, is going to be built upon your disposition as a peacemaker. This reconciliatory thing goes far and wide. Amen? Are you ready to welcome men into the kingdom? Amen? I feel like the the writer of the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews where? Chapter 5. He says, he's talking about Melchizedek. This man, he stops in the middle of nowhere. Of whom we have much to say, but you can't bear it now because you are dull of hearing. (laughs) It's like, you know the Hebrew Christians robbed us of some revelation concerning Melchizedek. Right? Says we have much, and I really want to encourage you to, to master this element of the forgive, of, of peacemaking. I uh, quickly want to just do the next ten minutes, and we'll stop. Um, Reconcile relationships as a first principle. Reconcile relationships are to be given preeminence above everything in the kingdom of God. Not so? In Matthew 5:21, you have heard that the ancients were told, part of Jesus' discourse on the Sermon on the Mount, you shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. Whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. I'm not saying this. These are the words of Christ himself. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering uh, before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. Then come and present your, your offerings. Um, everyone say first. The word first, that's why I entitled this a first principle. The word first tells me this is priority. So the presentation of your offerings is invalid within the context where you are aware uh, of relational tension between you and your brother. And if you read this the, the, between the lines here, you offer your offering with no intention of resolving the relationship. What bears greater priority in God's mind? God says, I'm not, I don't care about your offering in that context. God says, whether it's financial offering or whether were gift here can be many things. Whether you are exercising your giftedness in God that is unacceptable in a context where there's relational strife between you and your brother, you are aware of it, it says you remember. Everyone say you remember. It says so you offering and there you remember your brother. Don't forget your brother. Some of you are forgetting the things deliberately. Did you remember someone has an uh, uh, offense against you? It says, leave the offering. First, be reconciled. Priority. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come back. Right? And offer your offering. Your offering is only acceptable when the relationship tension is resolved. The offense is cleared. Now, listen carefully. I remember Dr. Sege some time ago, if you read and extract all the the Greek meanings of the words employed here, it literally means you owed the brother money. If you take these scriptures literally, the context here was the person offering, let's say he was offering and the gift, financial gift, remember that he had an outstanding debt towards his brother. Right. Now, some people say, so must we settle all our debt first? Before we give offerings. Now the Bible says don't take your offering to sort out the debt. says leave the offering. Right? Leave the offering. Go sort your brother's debt out. Come back and offer the offering. Hmm? I'm not saying do be irresponsible about paying your debts. You must do that. Right? But be obedient to fulfill your, your offering within the context of reconciled relationships. now you might ask um, must I wait for there for me to see positive change in the person that I hope to reconcile with? For me to adopt a reconciliatory mental disposition within my mind to reach out to them, my answer is no. Your commitment to reconcile is independent of the person, completely independent of the person. You know why? I'm not going to read the entire scripture, but Romans. Read it when you get home. Just a few. I'll focus on verse five, Romans five five. Hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. For when we were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8 on the next page. But God demonstrates his own love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not so. Verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled. When were you reconciled? While you were still enemies. Through the death of his son, much more having being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Verse 8 is crucial. God demonstrates his own love. That while we were still sinners, Christ died. When did he reach out in a reconciliatory fashion to us? He did not wait for us to to call on him. So when did he die for you? While you were still a sinner. When did he reach out to you? When you showed no inclination of reaching out to him. When did he come? Not when you were calling out. The initiative, he initiated the action to reconcile when you were still walking your own way. So you never ever wait for there to be positive change in the person. You always start the process. Because he died for you while you were yet a sinner. It is not, I love what First John says, it is not that we loved him, but that he first loved us. There is always a first. There's always someone to initiate. And our love is really reciprocal. It's reactionary. It's in response to the fact that he first loved. It's not that we love, John, it's very clear, but that he first loved us. Right? You might say to, the per, you, you, to yourself, that person, but the person hates me still. And yeah, we all know they hate you. Can't change the facts, but you can change. You, you must never, ever allow the facts to alter your disposition. You always say, while they are still sinners, I will die for them. While they're still unloving, I will initiate, I will express love. And let me just say, we're living in an age, I believe in this dispensation for this local church, where, this is, where the grace for this is being poured out. You simply do the initial thing and see the reaction. Simply take dare and take the chance. The love of God compelling you, Christ in you doing the, the, the reaching out. And see how that the expression of love can even change a person. Hmm? The expression of love can change a person. Death, quickly. Death, in the middle of the page, is an essential requirement for the process of reconciliation. Colossians 1.22 says, Yet has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. How does he reconcile through? Death. If you're going to function reconciliatory, you have got to f- live by the principle of death. Death to self. Death to your own thinking. Death to self-justification. Yeah? Death to justifying yourself. Death to thinking why you shouldn't reconcile. Die to that thinking. Right? Death to saying, well, they deserve it. Our relationship is like this because of what they did. Let that thought die within you. Abram rescues Lot when Lot left him. Even if the person leaves you, you still reach out for the person. Sacrifice your whole destiny if you have, but reach out to your brother. Amen? Reach out to somebody. Die to yourself. Now, David in Psalm 35. I quoted this last week. Check out David. Let me just read the paragraph before that. To those who hated him. And made deliberate plans for his destruction. David simply regarded them as brothers and friends in his mind. This kept his heart free from bitterness. Even when his enemies became sick, he fasted and he prayed for them. How is that for a man after God's own heart? That's when God says, You, this guy got my heart. God will say, For there goes my son. Blessed are the peacemakers. And this is what he said. What David said in Psalm 35 to those who hated him. David said, verse 27, Psalm 35, But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed down on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend and for my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bow down mourning. And you must read the previous 27 verses. How bad David's enemies have positioned themselves against him. But David's response is, but you're my enemies, but my mindset, I will react to you as though you're my brother and my friend. And when you are sick, I pray for you and I fast for you. Powerful, eh? I don't rejoice at your sickness. Well, good for you. Don't touch the anointed of God. See what's happening in your life. No, we don't think like that. Things are going wrong in the person's life. You are mourning. Things are going wrong in your life with your enemy. You are saddened by that fact. You don't want to see it happen. You've been praying to God to reverse the process for them. And you know in your heart, they hate you. But in your mental disposition, you position yourself in reference to them as though they are your brother and your friend. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of scriptures here. You can read the same. I'm going to read all the scriptures. Ephesians 2 from 11 to 17. About Christ functioning as our peace. Um, Verse 12. At that time, when you were without Christ, being aliens, etc., on the next page, I'm not going to go to that. That's for your own personal reading. On, on, on page 9, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 to, to, to 23, you can read um, there how Christ positioned himself to reconcile all things to himself by his death upon the cross. I want to close on page 10. We've got 10 minutes. I want to close with Acts 7 as a prophetic um, word to us. I read this and I inserted in the note. Let's read it, then I'll, I'll, I'll draw the principle and close the session. Acts 7 22. Check this narrative out, and let me see if you can see the principle. Don't read your notes, just read the scriptures. Okay. See if you can discern what God is saying to you and to the house in this context. Moses was learned in all wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in words and deeds. When he was 40, it came into his heart to visit his brethren. Everyone say his brothers. We're talking about peace between you and the brothers, not so? And the, the children of Israel. Seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. So David, um, David Moses, is visiting the Israelites and he sees an Egyptian flogging an Israelite. He's so angry. The deliverance in him, that anointing rises up, but he does it carnally. So he kills the Egyptian. Right? And it was basically committing murder. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. Question there before you read. Was God earmarking Moses to, to deliver his brothers from Egyptian oppression. Yes. But the, the scripture says here, they did initially. You see, Moses' life is 40, 40, 40. Three spans of 40. He dies at 120. 40 years in Pharaoh's courts. 40 years. He ran away from there because of this murder. 40 years under. Jethro, his father-in-law. And then he comes back. Delivers them. And he leads them for 40 years in the wilderness and then dies on Mount Nebo. Right? So 40, 40, 40. After the first 40, he was already deliverance instincts rising up in him. I must deliver my people from the Egyptian whip. But he tries to do it by his own means. He does it carnally. He kills one Egyptian. Right? So, and... Forty years later, being trained by Jethro and the Lord, he comes back and he delivers a whole nation effortlessly. He does something by his own strength and kills one Egyptian. Forty years later, he does it by God's methodology and he drowns the entire military in a Red Sea. You can do things by your own power and kill one, or you can do things by God's way and destroy the entire military strength of the most powerful nation in the world at that time, right? So, what was the difference? Initially, listen carefully. What does you see? Listen carefully. He had the he had the wrong attitude relationally to an enemy, and he killed the enemy. And he, because he killed the enemy, what 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 happened is. In the minds of the brothers, they did not understand that he was the deliverer for them. Read it. It says it like this. Where are we? Verse 26. So he kills the guy, right? Next day. Everyone say next day. Next day he appeared to two of them. Two of them were two brothers, not two Egyptians. Now he wants to function as peacemaker with the brothers. As they were fighting, he tried to reconcile. Them saying, men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But the one, but he who did his neighbor wrong, pushed him away. Pushed Moses away and say, who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? So this guy saw him. I'm trying to dramatize this thing. The brother who was offending the other Israelites saw Moses kill the enemy the previous day. Moses comes to brothers and tries to reconcile brothers, and the, his reconciliatory efforts fail. On what basis? He failed to respond to an enemy correctly. In one dispensation... And he is disqualified to reconcile brothers in the next dispensation. Last verse. At that saying, what made Moses balega? What made Moses kick down? What made Moses flee as a fugitive and remain away from the context that God called him to for 40 years? He only comes back 40 years later. What made him? It says, at that saying, The saying in his mind was, yes, you're you're going to be found guilty. This is going to be well known. You're going to be tried for murder. You're probably going to be killed. But the saying was, you've just failed to respond appropriately to an enemy. And now you're disqualified to operate as a peacemaker amongst brothers. Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian where he had two sons. Right? He meets his wife. I'm going to stop there. But can you see how important it is? If we are going to function as peacemakers amongst brothers, guess where is your training ground? Your training ground is your attitude to your enemy. If you prove, if you prove to an enemy that hates you, despises you. And even though, listen carefully, you have delivering, anointing, and mandate over your life, but if you do things the wrong way, hear me in the Spirit, if you do things the wrong way with the wrong responses, you are going to be disqualified from your God-given mandate to function in the ministry of reconciliation, to be the salt of the earth that God has called us to, and to have peace amongst ourselves. In other words, if you look at Matthew 5, when did God say, for then are you sons of your father? Only in reference to your attitude to an enemy. For then are you my sons, when I see you loving your enemies. Amen? Are you ready for this? I don't want to be disqualified. I don't want there to be a 40-year lag in the way in which God uses me. I want to pass all, especially the enemy test and the brother that hates you, the enemy that persecutes you. I want to pass all of these relational tests so I can bring the fulfillment of my destiny into the present. Amen? Amen? Amen. Just sit down. Let's just pray. Just lift up your hands to the Lord. Prophesy over you. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Have salt within yourself and live at peace with one another. You are the salt of not just your house. You are the salt of not just your local church. Some of you are maybe battling with issues right here. God has called you to be the salt of the whole earth. The range of relationship that God is calling you to affect is far and wide. I think like Moses, we have a delivering mandate upon this house to deliver sons from Egyptian bondage. Because in that culture, they are fighting each other. And we're also going to come to reconcile. But our power to reconcile is going to be based upon our biblically correct attitudes towards our greatest persecutors. Your training, in other words, is your enemy. Your preparation is your enemy. Everything in God's economy, He prepares you by sending you a Saul. He sends Saul to David. He sends Ishmael to Jacob Isaac he sends Esau to Jacob matters must be sorted out Father we pray that we will be prepared we lift up our hand to say yes we want this yes to spiritual perfection yes to spiritual maturity yes to the mature son the Ueos yes yes to the salt of the earth. want to be that father. don't want this to be terms we we throw about in the kingdom, but we want to live these terms. Yes to peacemaking. We pray that you would appeal through us. You would function in and through us. We are your ambassadors, your representations. We want to function by the principle of first be reconciled to a brother. So all our gifts will be acceptable and powerfully be used by you. So I pray in this house, I pray for everyone who would listen via MP3. I pray in Jesus' name, your power, your anointing, uh, your grace to do these things would rest and abide within their lives. In Jesus' name, amen.